you want to look in your bulletin, there's an outline in there. It has blanks in it if you want to follow along. I put the blanks in so that you don't cheat and go ahead. Uh, so you can fill those out as you go. And uh, you can follow along. Our text today is going to be Luke 14, 12 to 24. So you can either open your paper Bible or some screen that also shows you the scriptures. I'm going to read starting in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. This is Jesus talking. He's at a, he's at a dinner, a banquet. He also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet." Before we get into this parable, we're really going gonna to major on the parable of the great banquet. Before we get into it, I want to offer to you two palate cleansers, uh, like, that, uh, like that raspberry sorbet they'd give you at a, fa a fancy restaurant, okay? Two palate cleansers. What I mean is things that are going to prepare you to take in the meal of this parable, things that will prepare your heart and your mind, elements of perspective to help you get ready to take it in. Here are your two palate cleansers. Number one is this, and this is a palate cleanser for this morning and maybe for your whole life in the intake of the scriptures. Jesus is speaking freely. He's speaking freely, speaking directly. Okay? We, we live in a society, a current society, where we are told we talk around the dinner table about everything but what? You guys apparently don't even talk in here. Uh, everything but what? Religion and politics, right? Religion and politics. We talk about everything but religion and politics, which are basically the things that mean something. And so what we consider in our society, we, we are terrible at confrontation broadly in America. We're terrible at it. The, the word awkward is used so often. It's not even a word in other cultures, the word awkward. But we're so afraid of making things awkward or tense or uncomfortable that we think that what it means to be a kind person or a compassionate person is not to speak directly, is not to speak with boldness. But Jesus, we know, is compassion incarnate, literally <laughs> compassion incarnate and is the boldest speaker of anybody that we've ever ever heard of right anyone that we know so speaking boldly and being compassionate are not mutually exclusive those things can happen together if you look at this text Jesus from verse 1 to verse 24 Jesus is at one dinner he's on he's there on a sabbath he's dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees some big wig dinner and over the course of those verses Jesus in the first six verses 
heals a man on the Sabbath after asking whether it's lawful just to show them a correction about how they think about loving the needy. And right after that, he tells a parable when he notices that they love the places of honor, he tells a parable about why they shouldn't seek the places of honor. And then, same dinner, he says to the man who had invited him, the host of the dinner, Jesus says, hey, when you invite people to a dinner, don't invite these people who are here. Invite the poor and the needy. That's what he says to the host of the dinner. That's unbelievably awkward. And after that, some dude speaks up. We'll get there in a minute. And Jesus then, after that guy speaks up, Jesus then says, wait, I'm going to correct you with the parable as well. It's unbelievable. Four times in one dinner, Jesus just giving these people the business to help them understand. So I think he has something to tell us about how to be lovingly compassionate and bold at the same time. He has something to tell us. So I want to try to approximate the words of Jesus. I want to tell you as clearly as I can what I think that he's saying, as directly as I think he's saying it, hopefully with some semblance of the compassion with which he speaks. I'll never get there. But he speaks directly. He speaks freely. And he's speaking about issues within the church, within the priesthood specifically. He's talking about these Pharisees and saying to them, here are some things that you need to consider when you consider my kingdom so I just want us to understand that when we come to church, those of us who are, who are washed in the blood of Jesus, when we come to church, our final word will always be one of comfort. Okay, our final word will always be those of us who are washed. I'm not assuming everybody in our church is washed, okay? Those of us who are covered by the blood of Jesus, who is a, a, he's a substitute for us, those people will always be able to say at the end, it is well with my soul. Jesus paid it all. That's the final word, but it doesn't follow that every other word needs to be a word of comfort. We don't need to deflect and just say, well, yeah, just tell me something comforting. I was reading a book recently, and in the book, it stated that American religion has now brought us to a place where we expect to come to church in order to find the greatest benefit with the least amount of cost. We expect to come to church only to be comforted, not to hear how our lifestyles might change, how we may, might be transformed, how we might transform the world in turn we don't talk that way or we don't expect that we expect to be comforted so that's palate cleanser number one jesus spoke freely and directly i'm going to try and speak like him let's open our hands to whatever he might say freely and directly to us number two this is this follows right in turn beware your response to his challenge when we read jesus there are a lot of ways to reflect what he, to, to deflect what he said, to, to kind of let it glance off of us. We can say, yeah, well, he was speaking 2,000 years ago. It was a certain kind of culture. He was talking to Pharisees specifically. He's always talking in parables. He's speaking metaphorically. And therefore, we tend to deflect. But I found a quote from two different Christian men who I find very influential in my development and many of you probably do as well. The first is John Piper. He was a pastor of mine when I was in Minnesota and most of you have heard of him. He's a pastor and writer in the current day. And uh, the second is Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher. I'm going to take these quotes one by one. Uh, the quote from Piper came from a sermon that he preached November 9th, 1980. It was a Thanksgiving prelude sermon. And November 9th, 1980, he had been at Bethlehem at that point about six months. He was younger than me. His, his voice was two octaves higher than it is now. And... It was really shocking to me. He was like 34, 35 years old. It was shocking to me to hear how he spoke when he was that young. But he said this. 
He said, take heed how you hear. It was a sermon specifically on verses 12 through 14 and, and who you invite to the dinner. He said, take heed how you hear. There are some whose first and only reaction to Jesus' words will be, well, you can't mean that because then we would have no more church suppers, no more Sunday school socials, no more family reunions, and even the Lord's Supper would have been wrong. Then, having thus defused the text and bent the sword of the Spirit, they move on to the next passage and write on through the New Testament, justifying themselves and just like the Pharisees, manipulating the law of Christ to preserve their unruffled tradition and convenience. He goes on to say, There is no better defense against the truth than a half-truth. And the half-truth is Jesus does not intend to end all family meals and gatherings of friends. But the truth is, there is in every human heart a terrible and powerful tendency to live by the law of earthly repayment, the law of reciprocity. There is a subtle and relentless inclination in our flesh to do what will make life as comfortable as possible and to avoid what will inconvenience us or agitate our placid routine or add the least bit of tension to our Thanksgiving dinner. The most sanctified people among, among us must do battle every day so as not to be enslaved by the universal tendency to always act for the greatest earthly payoff. 34-year-old John Piper. Wow. That's quote number one. Quote number two has probably been a little more impactful for me. I, I saw it a couple months ago or so. and uh, It's from Soren Kierkegaard, like I say, Danish philosopher. He's talking about Christian scholarship and how it's used or abused, and this is what he said. He said, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be, able to, to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything, you ple everything except pledging yourself to acting accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in this world? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. And when I read that, I think specifically of one text that just eats my lunch, okay? That text is Luke chapter 12, two chapters before this parable. In verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I think, oh, those are good comforting words. Those are sweet words to his disciples. He said, fear not. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The next verse, he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. And when I hear that, I, I don't, it's hard because I, I, do I just go with Kierkegaard at that moment? Just say, he said, sell your possessions and give to the needy. So I will sell my possessions and give to the needy. I don't know exactly, like we live in a certain cultural context, I know that. I'm just saying, I'm saying whatever your individual application is, the words of Jesus are very difficult to stomach when taken straight. Very difficult to stomach. They are often a direct affront to the foundations of our society, to our very way of life. Like, are not just like, have you been nice to your family or not? Like, the very foundations of your life, Jesus is coming and saying, I don't know if that's okay. It's deeply unsettling for me. I've been kind of nauseous all week just thinking about the words of Jesus. Deeply unsettling. But when he says those things, we have to say, he is our Lord and our master. And we are loyal to him and nothing else. And no one else. So if it is a call to sell your possessions, I say, Yes, sir. But I would be ruined. 
And you can get into 1 Timothy 6 and the idea of, you know, as for the rich in this present world and charge them not to be haughty and to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. I understand. We can, we can actually have discussions about that. I'm not necessarily all the way to the end of Soren Kierkegaard. But I do think it's helpful to remember that we try to deflect the words of Jesus a lot. And it's good for us not to. His words are meant to unsettle us. They're meant to make you feel a little woozy. So I just want to give you a challenge as we move into this as your second palate cleanser. Uh, The challenge is this. When you read this and you get to the end and Jesus says, I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. It's the right question to ask. Is that me? Does he mean me? Am I not going to taste his banquet? To get unsettled. That question sets you on the path toward transformation. It sets you on the path toward repentance. It certainly sets you on the path to receive that final word of comforting mercy. But I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you and I'm about to plead with the Lord to allow you and me to take these words as straight as we can take them. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are deeply, deeply kind and merciful in your heart. We know that you are Lord and we know that you are the treasure of our lives. And so I pray that today we would open our hands to you and surrender to what you have for us. I pray that our final word would indeed be a word of comfort and along the way you would unsettle us where you need to unsettle us. I pray that you would hide me this morning and speak your words to your people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, for the rest of the sermon, I'm just going to ask some questions from the text. The first five are directly related to the text, and the last two are by way of application. Question number one, why does Jesus tell the parable? Why does Jesus tell these people at this dinner this parable? The immediate reason is because some ignorant and presumptuous guy spoke up in an ignorant and presumptuous way and summarized the mindset of an ignorant and presumptuous group of people. That's why he tells the parable. So Jesus has just said to them, basically, I see that you love the places of honor. I see that you love to exalt yourselves above others with nitpicky rules of righteousness in traditions of man. I see that you like to shove them down with contempt. I see that you, you are put off by the inconvenience and uncleanness of the needy. And so he says all of those things. And this guy is apparently, I assume he's one of the Pharisees, he's feeling awkward. Right, And so Jesus has said all these things, and the guy's like, well, let me try and just smooth it over. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, right? Am I right, guys? We're, we're still going, right? And Jesus in that moment says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who says you're going? And then he goes on to tell the story of the banquet that he might both show them their place in the kingdom and the place of the needy and untouchable in the kingdom. That's question number one. Number two, what is the banquet? It says a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. So what is this banquet? It's important that we understand what the banquet is as well as we can. And we, wanna, we don't want to just jump to conclusions. We want to figure out as much as we can what it is in the text. In the immediate text of the parable, the banquet is a free party. Right? This guy, if you, if you read the same, the same story as given in Matthew 22, this guy has slaughtered a fattened calf and some oxen, something like this. He's having this big soiree and he invites a bunch of people. It's clear that many were invited. He's a generous man, this master. And he says, 
come on to my party, it's free. And when he has sent out the invitations and gotten his RSVPs, then he sends out his servant and the servant says, come, everything's ready. No cover charge, come on. Come and enjoy. It's a free party. If you look at the surrounding context, what you realize is that this party is akin to what Jesus is talking about in Luke 15 with the parable of the prodigal son and the elder brother when it says that the father killed the fattened calf to celebrate that the son was lost and now he is found. It is, seems to be very similar, the, the same concept at least, to the treasure hidden in a field that you see in Matthew 13, that a man found a treasure in, hidden in a field. He, in his joy, went and sold everything he had to buy that field. All of this is approximated by the banquet. By the banquet. If you, Jesus, Jesus is giving a foreshadowing here. He's giving, he's giving a, a picture. Of, he's just calling what he calls the kingdom of God we come to know as the final gospel invitation to the final eternal presence of Christ in his kingdom as adopted sons and daughters of God. Or as the collective bride to the bridegroom who is Jesus forever and ever and ever. So when he says this banquet that I'm inviting you to that's free and you can come for everything is now ready. He's saying this is a participation in the eternal love and presence of Christ in his kingdom. This is the inheritance offered to all who are adopted into his kingdom. And I want to be clear here that he's not just saying, Jesus is not saying, if you step outside the parable for a moment, he's not just saying, this is a really good meal, come and have a good meal. When he invites you to his banquet, and it's clear that Jesus is the one talking, we'll get there in a minute. When he invites you to his banquet, he is saying, come and be in the presence of the host of the banquet. It doesn't mean that the food is not amazing. It is amazing. You go ahead and insert your favorite restaurant in right now uh, and then multiply it. That's what the food will be like. But he's not just inviting you to a, a transaction of a meal. He's inviting you to the relational presence of the host. He's inviting you. He says in Revelation 3.20, I think this is really a helpful verse. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens to me, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The, in, the, the relational intimacy of that statement is the invitation to the kingdom. You come, you dine with me, I dine with you. That's what it means to be called to this banquet. The eternal God eternally existent in overflowing trinity, love and joy and energy forever and ever and ever past, overflowing in that kind of love says, come. Leland talked about this last week. Come and join me in that. I will dine with you and you will dine with me. Everyone who is thirsty, come. So the kind of language that Leland was talking about in Matthew 11 last week when, he, when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not just saying, and I want to be clear here because we're good theologians, okay? He's not just saying, come receive justification by faith. Be accepted and go about your business. He's saying, come step into the kingdom and be with me. Take abundant and eternal life which flows from me as you are connected. That is the banquet. That's question number two. Number three, why is the master angry? We know they said no. We know that they gave excuses in the text, right? They, one said, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So they have RSVP'd yes. When the servant comes, they say, no, I can't make it. 
And it's very clear in the, in the parable that the, the master became angry. And the master is Jesus. One of the reasons we know that the master is Jesus and Jesus even starts speaking in the first person is that in verse 24, he says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And if you look at verse 23, the master is speaking to a servant, singular. But in verse 24, when Jesus says, For I tell you, the you there is plural. He has turned his gaze from the parable to the men at the banquet, the men and women at the banquet, whoever's there. And he says... I tell you, you, I, Jesus, tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Why is he angry? And he's angry. He's angry. Like, sometimes we like to skirt over the anger of God. Jesus, in his generosity and is in his compassion, can be and rightly is angry. You can hear it in his voice when he turns from the parable and looks at these people. He says, I'm telling you. None of those men are going to taste my banquet. He's mad. He's angry. So I'm asking the question, why is he angry? One, number one, reason number one, because the banquet is free. It's free. He killed a fattened calf. He killed oxen. He made all the preparations, I'm sure, at great cost to himself. And there is no cover charge. God says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2, he says, Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Come, if you thirst, come. It's free. Come, for everything is now ready. It's free. Just come. And you can have it. And when they say, no thanks, that is an affront to him it is an offense to him to say I'm indifferent to everything that you have offered me ultimately the water of life without price that's number one number two because they're supposed to be his friends these are people that he handpicked he said these these are my friends I'm going to send you an invitation the way you would decide who's going to come to your wedding he said I'm going to hand you an invitation they RSVP'd yes so that when he sent his servant out, he said, it's time. It's time to come. But they're indifferent. So this, just to be clear about the historical context, there are many parables like this. This is clearly a parable where Jesus is speaking to his chosen people, the Jews. And he's saying, look, the fullness of time has come. My kingdom is ready to be ushered in. I have done through the law over the course of the last couple thousand years, I have done a work to shut you up. We now know, it says in Romans chapter 3, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, right? They're now held accountable to the law so that no one can speak. No one can put forth their works and be justified. The Pharisees have received the law. The Jews in general have received the law. They have been shut up under the law. The Lord is ready to pour out his mercy in the fullness of time. So much so that Jesus takes on a body. He becomes incarnate and says, hey, I'm going to do it now. I am the one, the rescuer, who, who you've been waiting for. And then when the servant comes, I say, no, uh, we were just giving lip service. We were honoring you with our lips, but our hearts were far from you. They were supposed to be his friends. Number three, the master is angry because their excuses are lame. They're pitiful. There are two potential interpretations of the excuses. The first is that the excuses demonstrate their actual idols. Okay, so you look at their excuses. 
a field that you got to go look at, oxen that you got to go examine, and a wife, and therefore some reason you can't come. You could either say, well, business, money, and marriage, these are their idols. These are the things that they worship, and therefore they don't come to the banquet. I think there's some truth to that. I think the second interpretation is probably more likely. They're just coming up with some bad excuse. I think there's a combination between those two interpretations. But if you hear the actual excuses, I think when someone says, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it, the natural question is, you bought a field before you saw it? Right? You bought oxen and haven't examined them? Or you married a wife and therefore can't come to a three-hour banquet? Or however long it is, a day? Or bring her? Probably a plus one invitation. I don't understand, right? So it, it, it sounds to me like college students always sound to me that we invite them to a Bible study on Wednesday night and they kind of trail off and they're mumbling and it's like, hey, you want to come to the Bible study? And they say, yeah, I just go, uh, stuff. what? You speak up? And they're like, yeah, I got some, uh, I got a video game to play. It's, it's, it's saved right now and I got to get back to it. Things like that. It sounds like that's what's happening is they're making horrible, horrible excuses. And the master looks at the feast, the banquet, it's ready, fat and calf, veal is good. I don't, I don't know what your, how, how animal rights go in here. I'm just saying veal, I think, tastes really good. I've had it like once or twice. Fat and calf, okay? And they say, no, I'm good. I don't think I'm gonna come. And he's angry. And the reason he's angry is because he knows. You sum all these up to say the reason he's angry is because he knows that the banquet is better. He knows that the banquet is better. If you're a parent in here, you know what I'm talking about, but you feel this mixture of anger and sadness, of anger and compassion with your children all the time. I have four younger children. And I don't probably six, seven times a day minimum. There's something that happens where they are stuck in their anger toward one of their siblings or towards their parents or we are offering something to them, namely an easy way to simply apologize, receive mercy and move on with a happy life, to let water roll off their back in, in certain interactions. One of our tenets in our family creed, we have like eight tenets in our family creed, one of them is water off a duck's back. Water off a duck's back. It's just a little phrase that we say it was prophetic in our family because no person in our family has ever let water roll off their back. Right? Just go. It it means I forgive you, right? It's just easy. But we say I'll look at a stewing, one of my stewing children who just, one of our kids actually does the little bunny nose with like wrinkles the nose and ruffles it. And I'm like, I know you're stewing right now. I'm offering you life. All you have to do is say you were wrong. And she gives me one of these, you know, and she crinkles her mouth or whatever, or nose. Well, I guess I, I narrowed it down to three of our children with the she. Um, but still, you don't know. Uh, and, and all you have to do is say you were wrong. All you have to do. And you'd be free. And when they come at my face with that rage, there is a mixture in me of anger and sadness. I go, come on! What are you doing? It's better. It's way better. You could be free in an instant. I tell them a story. I, I told my daughter the story a long time ago. It's called the story of the key. That's what I call it. It's just some 
dad made up story, right? And I say, you're walking through this forest and you see a light off to your right and you move toward the light and you see that there's a party there. There's a party where everybody's enjoying themselves and all your favorite foods are there. Her favorite foods at that time were dill pickle chips, okay? And they were there and, and, and you, look, you walk up to the, to the wall of the party. It's a clear wall so you can see in. You walk up and you realize there's only one way in and there's a keyhole. And outside standing there are all these miserable people. They're about 10 feet apart and so never get near me. And inside these people are in a pretty crowded area. And they're knocking at each other but they're just going, that's okay. I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine. And they're dancing and they're enjoying their dill pickle chips. And you're outside and all you have to do, she finds a key on the ground. And all she has to do is put the key in and read the inscription on the key. And it says, I was wrong. All you have to do, and you'll be free to come enjoy the party. It's better. All you have to do. And they look at Jesus, and they say, I'm not saying that. And he's angry. He says, none of those men are going to taste my banquet. That's number three. Number four. Why don't they want to come exactly? I, I, I hinted at it just a minute ago, but. Why don't they want to come? It's free. It's a free banquet. Like if I heard there was a free banquet at my favorite restaurant, I would go. But they don't come. There are two ways to put why I think they don't want to come. Number one, because Jesus has demonstrated to them that attendance of his banquet involves a death that they are not willing to die. Because Jesus has demonstrated to them that attendance of his banquet involves a death that they are not willing to die. So you got to look at the surrounding context to understand where this parable fits and the deaths that they're not willing to die. But it seems to me that there are at least three deaths that they're not willing to die outside in the context of chapter 14 and inside the context of the parable. Death number one is death to reputation. Death to their reputation. If you see in verses 7 to 11, he tells the parable to them when he notices how they chose the places of honor and basically says, and he says this in other places as well, you don't take the place of honor now. God will hand you. You take the lowest place. You understand yourself to be in the lowest place and God will hand you the place of honor later. You don't give it to yourself. You don't figure out another way to that place of honor. And then in verses 12 to 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet and you do your pomp and circumstance, posturing, social networking, law of reciprocity to get your payment back. He says, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid, whether for your reputation or actually financially be repaid. But when you give a feast, you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. When he's saying that, he's saying to come to my banquet means to be Needy. That's why in the parable itself, he says, these are the people that are going to come to the banquet. Those very people I just told you about in verse 13. The crippled and the poor and the blind. The lame. They are going to come to the banquet. The parable is told to make the Pharisees squirm. To make them feel uncomfortable because they treat those people with contempt. And Jesus is saying, people who attend my banquet are needy. They say, don't tell me I'm needy. I like my elite status. I like to be lifted up by others. There's a, there's a bit by Jerry Seinfeld where uh, he's talking about being on an airplane and sitting in coach and watching the, the flight attendant as they shut the first class curtain. And he says the flight attendant always gives you that look right before they shut the curtain that goes, if only you've worked a little harder. And shuts the curtain like that right there to say a smug look to say, I like my status. I like my reputation. 
I like to be told that I am high up. And Jesus says, no, 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 let me tell you who's going to inherit the kingdom. And they say, those people, they will inherit the kingdom? And so what he's intimating to them through the excuses is those people who die to their reputation will inherit the kingdom but nobody else. Number two, they won't die to it. Number two, they won't die to comfort and convenience. You see it in verses one through six with the man that Jesus heals who has a case of dropsy. Dropsy is like edema, okay? It's, this guy was probably just very swollen up with edema. He had excessive fluid and on him probably not all that pleasant to see. And Jesus says, hey, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remained silent because they basically wanted to test him and they didn't, they didn't really think it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. So he took the man, he healed him of his dropsy, and then he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day would not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things because what he is saying is your comfort and convenience is a God to you. He says it again in verses 12 through 14 when he says, don't just invite whoever you enjoy who's going to pay you back to your dinner. Don't just decide who's going to be most pleasant for you and invite them. Die to your comfort and convenience. That's number two. They wouldn't die to. Number three, financial security. They wouldn't die to their financial security. It says in verses 12 to 14, you don't invite people who can repay you. And then you see within the parable, and I think there's some truth to this. A guy says, I don't want to come because I bought a field and I bought some oxen. And my financial investments are keeping me from Jesus. Now, obviously, this is difficult uh, in some way because, let's be honest, we live in a wealthy area. Okay? We're just going to say it clearly. We live in a wealthy area. Most of us in this church are wealthy, certainly relative to the rest of the world. This should make us somewhat unsettled. It should. Um, I just want to say that Dave Ramsey makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Okay? Uh, and this is what I mean. Not that he doesn't give good principles at points. But the point of being a believer, walking into Jesus' kingdom, is not figuring out helpful principles of finance. Being a believer is dying to your money. To say, I will have treasure in heaven. I don't care about my money now. That's what it means. That's what it means to step into his kingdom. It doesn't mean that being a good saver is being a Christian. That's why I feel a little funny about Dave Ramsey. Sometimes. They're not willing. The Pharisees are not willing to die to their financial security. You see it two chapters later when he says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. And it says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So I was, to sum this up, I was sitting with a, a student from the University of Minnesota. He was a big old football player. He played on the offensive line and he used to ride me around campus on his moped. It was strange. And uh, we were sitting at Chipotle one day for lunch. And I had been, I was the chaplain of the team for one year and I had been preaching the gospel to the players and he said, we sat down and he said, okay, I like this idea. I think it's right. The idea that I can't perform the law for God and that he would offer me grace. I like that. He says, I have a question for you. Can I have that and that house in the suburbs with a white picket fence and 2.5 children and a pretty little wife? Can I have those? And this is more or less what I said to him. No. No. You can't. You can't have both of those things. 
And this is what I mean. Not, not in the way he meant, because he was serving two masters. Okay? I, I told him, it may end up that that's where you live, but you are part of Jesus' kingdom when you accept those things. You're no longer seeking your treasure on earth. You're not building a heaven on earth. When Jesus invites you to his kingdom, he invites you to die. And so I, it's strange for me to say that in here because we're all those people that live in the suburbs, right? Like, like, like we are those people. And I'm saying, if you don't die to it, you cannot have both. So if you don't die, you don't, you're one of those people that says, ah, I bought a field, I bought a house in the suburbs. I got my kids. They're playing all sorts of sports and I look pretty important in the community. I can't come. It's the first way to say it. The other way to say it, and I think this might resonate with you guys, is say the reason they don't want to come is because the banquet is an invitation to be with the king in his kingdom and they don't like the king and they don't like the kingdom. They don't like being called poor and needy. They don't like rubbing shoulders with the poor and needy. They don't like moving into a world, moving themselves, pouring themselves out into a world of need. And they certainly don't like the host of a banquet who's as radically compassionate as all that. They don't like that. So, number five, who gets to come to the banquet instead? Technically, the people that get to come to the banquet is anybody who accepts the invitation. Right? But as we read the context of the parable, what we see is... The people who actually got invited didn't want to come. And so Jesus makes a point in the parable by saying, all who are poor and lame and blind and crippled can come. What does that mean? Because we are, most of us in this room are none of those things, physically, circumstantially. So what does that mean? It does mean, I think, that you have to consider yourself spiritually poor and lame and blind and needy. Almost the exact same language is used in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea. When Jesus says to them, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So he's saying you must consider yourself that way. Anyone who considers themselves poor, lame, blind, and crippled can come. Horatius Bonar in a a book called uh, The Everlasting Righteousness said it this way. He said it is the conscious absence of all good things that leads us to the fountain of all goodness. The conscious absence of all good things that leads us to the fountain of all goodness. That's why the law was given, to help us get there quicker. That fountain is open to all who thus come. It is closed against all who come on any other footing. He who comes as partly righteous is sent empty away. He who comes acknowledging unrighteousness, but at the same time trying to neutralize it or expiate it, like pay for it by feelings and prayers and tears, is equally rejected. But he who comes as an unrighteous man to a righteous yet gracious God finds not only ready access, but plenteous blessing. The Pharisees were not willing to say that they were wrong. They were not willing to call themselves poor and lame and blind and crippled and mean it. To feel the kind of destitute reality of our souls. To mean it. And therefore they didn't come. They're not going to taste the banquet. 
So it definitely has a spiritual meaning, but I think there's something else there. There's an actual experiential connection to the spiritual reality, and this is where some of my unsettledness has come from. I think when we get to the, to the heavenly throne room and you look at that multitude, more, most of those people are going to be actually like these people, those who are poor and needy and lame and blind. You're not going to find as many rich people as you're going to find poor people in heaven. I think it's just easier to understand your plight when you're poor than when you're rich. That makes me feel unsettled because we don't live among the poor. We're not the poor, circumstantially. There's a quote from Brennan Manning that is just so helpful, I think. He says, the kingdom is not an exclusive, well-trimmed suburb with snobbish rules about who can live there. No, it is for a larger, homelier, less self-conscious cast of people who understand they are sinners because they have experienced the yaw and pitch of moral struggle. That's what you're going to find there. You're either going to find those people who are actually circumstantially were brought to that spiritual place where they said, I need. These people who got the invitation when the master came or the servant came representing the master and said, hey, why don't you come and have fat and calf? They're like, sign me up. I'm hungry. I'm needy. Nobody talks to me that way. Nobody gives me that kind of kind invitation. But the Pharisees who are entitled say, no, nah, I'm all right. I have plenty of banquets. So I do think that your comfort in initiation toward those who are needy, like physically needy, is a picture of your comfort with Christ's kingdom. It's a picture of it. Last thing before application. All who renounce everything they have can come. All who renounce everything they have. In the ensuing verses, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross... There it is. And come after me cannot be my disciple. Pretty extreme language. And then in verse 33, he finishes by saying, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so the natural question you would ask is, How then is it free? Didn't you say it was free? The banquet is free? Because he just gave this list of things that you have to do, it seems like. And the answer that I would give you is this. I have really thought a lot in my life about whether it's free or costly to come into the kingdom of Christ. And I think the parable that clarifies it for me is the parable of the treasure hidden in a field. In Matthew 13, verse 44, it says the kingdom of God is like the treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. And when he found that treasure, in his joy, he went and sold everything he had and then came back and bought the field. He, He hid it. I don't know if that's relevant to this parable. But he hid it sold everything he had, came back and bought the field. That's, I, that, I think, demonstrates whether it is costly to come into the kingdom of Christ. Because what he says is there's a treasure. Or these poor and needy people are saying, well, I could just do my life here, or I could come to this unbelievable banquet. And Jesus is saying, the people who are going to come, he's saying to the Pharisees, the people who are going to come are going to die to everything they have. Specifically, their reputation, their comfort and convenience, and their financial security But if they understand it like the the man who found the treasure hidden in a field, then what they said is, this isn't costly. It's a treasure. I'll gladly sell everything that I have to buy the field. I want the treasure. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. All of them. Including suffering with him. That is a gift. It's a treasure. It's a banquet. 
Jesus offers you a new and better reputation fixed in the eyes of the one whose opinion matters more than any in the universe. He offers you a deep, transcendent, not circumstantially based comfort and convenience because you are safe in the hands of the God of the universe. He offers you treasure in heaven that will last forever and ever and ever instead of this little vapor's breath of a life. And so when he says come, he's not saying, hey, it costs a lot. He's saying come, you can have it. You don't have to pay for it with your works. Just come. Everything is now ready. And so I ask you, what is your litmus test? What's our litmus test? How do we know we're not the ones making excuses? How do we know? I'm a Lord of the Rings guy like Leland is. And there's a scene, my favorite scene in all of film is when Bilbo and Gandalf are going at it about the ring. If you don't know anything about Lord of the Rings, you can just skip this part. But... Bilbo, the ring represents all evil and pride and will to dominate all of life. And Gandalf says to Bilbo, I think you should leave the ring behind. It's killing you. And Bilbo goes, eventually, after a pretty intense interaction, he goes, you're right, Gandalf. The ring must go to Frodo. He must. And then he puts it in his pocket and walks out the door. He's like, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir, preacher. Right? It's like, I, I get it. And then he just walks out the door. And Gandalf says, Bilbo. The ring is still in your pocket. Is that, like he's, I like to do the impression. He says, he says, the ring's still in your pocket. And so I, the thing that's been working me over this week is, how do I know the ring's not in my pocket? How do I know that I'm not being like, yep, RSVP, I'm coming to the banquet, but I really love my comfort and convenience. I, sorry, I love my comfort and convenience. I love my reputation a lot. How do I know? Like, how do I know that I'm not still just saying yes, 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 giving lip service and then walking into my life saying, I found alternative means to my reputation. I found alternative means to my comfort and convenience, namely my comfort and convenience. I'm still leaning on my financial security with everything I've got and I'm giving lip service to Jesus. I'll give you two, two evidences, okay? I'll just, I'll close this way. The first evidence that you are not one of those making excuses, but rather one of the poor and needy in the banquet is desperation. I have felt so desperate this week as I've gone, how do I know? Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He gives so many warnings about my lifestyle. I feel so desperate, and I think, okay, I think that's a good evidence. I said, please, Lord, come now. Like the thief on the cross, just remember me in your kingdom. Please, would you cover me by the blood of Jesus? Please. Got to feel desperate. Desperation yields fruit, folks. Desperation makes you delight in the king and his kingdom. Is it me? Am I not going to taste the banquet? I said, Lord, please let me taste the banquet. And he said, okay. You can taste it. You've become one of those poor and needy. That's litmus test number one, is desperation. Litmus test number two, and this moves to question number seven, is how compelling is this banquet to you? Is it compelling enough to become the servant and compel other people's people to come in? The master says, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Go, he said, because the servant says there's still room. He says, well, go, fill it up. The king is good and generous and he wants more in his kingdom. He says, go, servant, fill it up. 
And so if the banquet is compelling enough to you, like the man who found the treasure hidden in the field, if the banquet is compelling enough to you, it will be better than your reputation when you decide to start talking about religion and politics with somebody. Or start more talking about the hope of heaven, the reality, the exclusive reality of Jesus. The challenges of their lives may be intimating that their deeds are evil. That makes a conversation really awkward and your reputation is drained immediately. But if this banquet is compelling enough to you, and I don't say this as a work to get into the kingdom. I say this as a someone who's been welcomed into the kingdom. If it's compelling enough to you, and you say, come in, I'm going out, highways and hedges, come in. Who, can, who else can I tell about this? Come in, that his house may be filled. They say in Acts 4, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to obey men, God rather than man, you can be the judge, but I just can't stop talking about it. I cannot stop talking about it. Come to the banquet, whoever would come and be forgiven and know the king. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed desperate people. I pray that we would identify more with the poor and lame and needy than we would with those who cherish their own earthly human reputations, with those who cherish their own earthly comfort and convenience, with those who cherish their own earthly financial security, would we actually believe, would you increase our faith to believe that we have treasure laid up for us in heaven, that we have a reputation that cannot be tarnished because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and our comfort and convenience is not the final goal in this life. Would you move us toward the needy as those who are needy? Help us to understand that this banquet is far better than whatever else, whatever, whatever excuse we could make. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.